You know, John's gospel, um, as we lean into this, this service today, John's gospel spends more real estate um, than any of the other gospel writers on the final few hours of Jesus' life with his disciples. Starting in John six or 13, the disciples are in an upper room. They're uh, celebrating the uh, Passover feast, which was very common to do for a Jewish um, uh, Jewish folks. And, um, and so as they are uh, living into this, they are going through um, a... Uh, um... You got a strobe light, man. I did. Yeah, I tell you what. Uh, that's pretty impressive. You like that? I did. Do you want me to fix it? Would you? I, I know you are the tech person here. Yeah, that's but, exactly uh, right. All right. Let's get back to that. There we go. Um, and so uh, in, this, in this upper room, Jesus, uh, starting with John 13, spends about four or five chapters just kind of zeroing in on some very important uh, information. Nothing about the weather, nothing about the sports scores uh, between Georgia and Tennessee, uh, nothing about, yeah, sorry about that. Some of you are excited. Some of you, is that straight down, down into right? the depths. I, everybody just turned off their, their this ears. This is a sermon that. about heaven. Yeah. And we're going in the opposite direction. I just want you to know. So you don't like any one of those teeth. It's not an awful yeah, this, wasn't in yeah. So we're, we've um, already, we're already there. So I mean, yeah. you know, uh, <laughs> yeah. so, uh, and, and, and one of the things that he does is if, if um, Jesus does is if you actually start with chapter 14, it seems like Jesus is really making a sharp turn here. He says to his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Now, what's interesting here is if you don't know what has happened to um, uh, previously, you'll never understand what Jesus is saying here, the significance of what Jesus is saying, and what he will say and do uh, through the next few hours and days uh, on earth. The disciples at the end of 13 become troubled. Their hearts become troubled. The, the Greek word terazzo actually means um, a still pond, and when you throw a rock into the center, there's ripple effects that reach every boundary of that water. So when Jesus is telling his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled, he's telling them there's something specific that has started these, and don't let it actually go to the boundaries of your heart, affecting every area of your, of your lives. What ends in 13 is Jesus uh, tells the disciples that one of them was going to betray them and that he would be handed over to the chief priests and he would die. And you could imagine that this really turned the disciples' lives upside down. Upside down for very good reason. And Jesus starts in verse four, or chapter 14 by saying, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. You know, if you think about it, troubled hearts come in many forms, don't they? I mean, if you think about your own li lives, and, uh, and as you think about those one or two incidences that cause a ripple effect in an all-but-calm storm or pond of your life, and how that ripple, that, that, uh, that ripple can reach the boundaries of your lives, you may be able to start to understand and empathize a little bit with the disciples, Broken relationships certainly can cause a heart that is troubled. Regrets and shames of yesterday, things that we wish we could do differently, those can certainly 
cause a ripple effect. Unknowns of, of yes or tomorrow and all of those. But in the context of John 14, the, uh, the disciples' hearts were troubled because of the imminent death of a loved one. The disciples were troubled by Jesus' imminent departure. Now, Jesus' response to these, the disciples was, believe in God, believe also in me. The word here, believe it or not, is not an imperative, which is a command. It's not a command. It is a statement of a verb. Continue to do these things. Do what you already are doing. You believe in God, then, can, then believe in me. Continue to believe in God. Continue to believe in me. It's like statements like you might see in Isaiah that says, have you not known? Have you not heard? It's, it's kind of getting everybody on the same page. You already know that the Lord is the everlasting God. You already know the, the create, that he is the creator that, of the ends of the earth, that he does not faint or grow weary. So Jesus is starting with his disciples with something they already know to get them to a place or a starting place to lean into something that they don't fully understand. The purpose of what Jesus is saying here is to give them hope. And this is what you see in John chapter 14, verses 2, at verse 2. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I, told you, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? It, it, there is a description here, a description that describes a little bit of this afterlife, this, this heaven that Jesus uh, is speaking about here, in which Scripture talks about over and over. But this description is followed with a promise. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. The disciples, they have a troubled heart. And the last thing they needed was a description of heaven. What they needed was the promise that where I am, you may be also. Now, this is an obscure passage when it comes to heaven in the scriptures. And in the Old Testament and the New Testament talk about crossing the Jordan or on the other side of death, what heaven is, is like. How does the New Testament, Shane, flesh that out? Yeah, the New Testament assumes it first. And uh, there are a couple of images that it uses to describe heaven. Um, again, everybody in that day and time had an assumption of it, and so it was a common pool of knowledge for them. Uh, I wish that they, the New Testament writers wrote more about heaven, but there are three images or three concepts or themes that are very helpful in understanding heaven. And one of those is, comes out of a, a passage in uh, Philippians, and, and Paul says that you're a citizen of heaven. And so citizenship is one of the images, and, and, and by citizenship, what we mean is that members either of a community or of a country or a kingdom, they are afforded all the rights and the privileges and the freedoms of that group or of that country or that kingdom or that community. And so that was the... That, that was the experience of Paul 
in, in describing heaven, he drew from his, his understanding of being a citizen in the Roman world, and it was highly valued in the Roman world uh, because of the empire. They could afford Paul and other citizens different rights, freedoms, and protections. Paul uses that to say, but now you also are a citizen of heaven, which means now you have different rights, you have different privileges, different freedoms that are, that are afforded to you not by either the emperor or the Roman Senate. It's now afforded to you by God because you're part of his kingdom. One of the things that uh, I, I love to do, this is probably in the top three things uh, of just every year, it's w one of my goals, is I always like to travel abroad. Like to get outside of the United States, I want to, I've always uh, enjoyed either a, a different country, the th how, how, you know, what, what it was like for the food, the people, what it, just living in that area. And so every year, we, we normally don't do it every year, but we try to go at least every, every few years and love going on those trips. But I have to tell you, I like returning. I like coming back home. And there's something that I feel whenever the plane lands and I put my feet on U.S. soil again. And I, I walk either, at, you know, from the plane and immediately you're, you're ushered into the customs area. But the way I approach customs coming back into the United States is completely different than how I approach customs going into another country. When I return home, there's a sense of when I walk through to, to clear customs, this is my place. This is my soil. This is my turf. It's mine, my dirt. And so this image of being a citizen and clearing customs is this image that, that, that Paul drew upon, not the customs part, but the idea that you have certain freedoms, privileges, you, you have certain protections that are afforded you now by God and the way the Philippians passage described it is that when you clear customs, you clear from one place to the next, and everything that comes with that is yours. And the way Paul described it is that the transformation that Jesus experienced, that's the same transformation that's afforded to you. Because this is your place, your dirt your country because you're a citizen of his kingdom. That's the Philippians connection. You're a citizen of heaven. And all the things that are afforded to Jesus, they're now yours. Now, there's another image, and we don't really have a, a one central passage to describe this because there would be so many. And that is this concept of, of, of beauty. And maybe the best book to, to use or the best letter in the New Testament to describe that would be the book of Revelation. Now, I know for many people that as soon as you hear the book of Revelation, you know, it's kind of wonky. You know, you sort of kind of step back a little bit. And some of that has to do with the genre of the writing. It's apocalyptic style of writing. And, and, and so they take things that the imagery and pictures and things like that, and, and, and it's used to describe a present time, but it's always future-looking. And so for some people, there's a little discomfort whenever we talk about or, or preach or read or study the book of Revelation just because of the way the genre of the writing. And, and that's unfortunate because often 
whenever we think about the book of Revelation, we spend more time trying to figure out the wind, the time of it. What part of it is the present tense? What part of it is it future, like in a few years, or future like in a hundred years, or a thousand years? And so there's all this discussion on the wind. And it's, you know, it's not bad to, to study it. But we miss often the what that the text is describing. And every time in the New Testament, then whenever they... they Want to, I mean, how do you describe something that's indescribable? What are you going to do? You're going to draw from your pool of knowledge. You're going to draw from your pool of understanding. You're going to draw from your pool of experience. And you're going to take the best of those things to describe what you see or what, what God paints the picture of for you. And so for John in his day, the things that were of utmost value, they were things like diamonds. They were things like emeralds. They were things like rubies. They, they were things like gold and silver. I mean, that, if John has to say, I got to describe something that is so beautiful, how do you do it? You're going to take the things that are beautiful to you. But you know what they are there? They're the common. All these things that John said, these are of utmost value to me in beauty, in price, and in value. They're nothing more than the average, the common, when it comes to heaven. If I had to describe something that's so beautiful, indescribable, I can only use the things of my own experience. But whatever it is, it's just the average there. Indescribable. More beautiful. When, my, uh, when Connor and Caroline were, were younger, and I mean like a, a great deal younger, uh, where we would read books to them. This was before, you know, learning to read. And so I used to love to read all types of books to, to my children. We would do it at night. And, and one of the things they had to suffer through is to, for me to read the Chronicles of Narnia to them. And it took a while. There's like seven books. And, uh, you know, it's not like the little tiny book. I mean, but the Chronicles of Narnia, some of you are familiar with, maybe it's, have, have witnessed the movies. A couple of them have been out years ago. And, but C.S. Lewis wrote this, and, and it's a fictitious story that he wrote for his niece, who was a young girl at the time. And, 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 but it's based on Christian principles. It's based on, on Christian imagery and themes. And, and, and those that, that know the, the plot or at least the, 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 the storylines, you know that there's a lion. His name is Aslan. And Aslan is the Jesus figure, figure in all the stories. And, and it's about Aslan and the seven or eight different children tied to different, like a family, larger family, and how they interact inside the, the, the country of Narnia in the place of Narnia. And they're constantly sort of moving back and forth, and, and they're interacting with this lion. And, and the very end, the last book, the very last part of the last book has always been something that I loved. And this is what, uh, this is what Lewis wrote. He says, and, and he spoke, he being Aslan the lion, he's talking to the children, says, and, he, and, and he spoke, and he no longer looked at them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. 
And for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can uh, most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But then catch this part. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. And their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter 1 of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, and which every chapter is better than the one before. So when we think about heaven, not only this idea of rights and privileges and, and, and everything that's afforded to you, and, and, and as, as we clear from one place to the next, transformation, but what we clear into, according to the New Testament writers, more beautiful than you can ever imagine. And the best they can do is take the things of utmost value to them, but it's only the common there. But there's another image. I know that you're, you're, I know you, uh, there's one that you've kind of shared with me this week that was incredibly meaningful for me. So I'd like for you to share that with them. And and this image is, is what, it kind of describes what we do in the meantime. It's kind of like what describes uh, a little bit as we, what we are doing as we are living in the troubled hearts of loss of loved ones and as we live out the rest of our lives here before we begin, uh, you know, get through the cover and the title page and begin chapter one. And it is, uh, it, it kind of circles back around to John chapter 14. Simply, when Jesus talks about that description of what heaven would be like, in a very um, bland kind of way, the focus of his disciples was to hinge or gravitate towards the promise. And that promise of them being with him, the promise of Jesus coming and uh, taking them to be with them, was to ultimately give them hope. And what that disciples needed to hear at that point was that they would be with Jesus again. And focusing on that promise of I'm going to come and and I will receive you back or I will take you back so that you will be with me. I I don't want you to pass over that too quickly. Uh, When Jesus is talking to his disciples here, he's using the second person plural pronoun, you. He is just not talking to, he is not just talking to John or James. He's not talking individually to Peter or Bartholomew. When Jesus tells them that he will come and take them so that they will be with him, he's using this plural pronoun of you, which means that it is not just these individuals that will be with Jesus together, but it will be James and John and Philip and Peter and Andrew and Nathaniel and us. Leaning into this promise, you have to get to this place of resolution. 
Now, when Jesus says with him, he also means with them. Yeah, this idea of, of being tethered to Jesus this way and also tethered to them, um, you know, that idea of anchor. That anchor. And that, so if Jesus is the one that we are supposed to put our hope into, mm-hmm. Hebrews gives us this word picture. It, we have this true, sure, steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. An anchor that is embedded into the rock, that when the storms come and bat, uh, batters the sides of that boat, that boat remains sure and steadfast. But do you know what is important about an anchor and the usefulness of an anchor is being tethered to the anchor. An anchor just thrown into the sea means nothing. It's being tethered to that anchor that means the most. And so in Greek culture, they use this word uh, forerunner in navigation, in in shipping. uh, That means when a big ship comes into port, a tugboat will go up and go out. And it will pick up that boat's anchor and put it in that tugboat. It will pull that tug or that large ship into safety. And this is the image of Jesus. He is this anchor, but he's also the forerunner who has gone on before us and he is pulling us in. Just because our anchor is in his tugboat, a weird image, but our anchor is in his tugboat does not mean that we're saved just yet, but we are in the process of being pulled to the place where he is so that we are with him. And if it means with him, it also means with them. That's a beautiful image. Yeah, I mean, I think about this for, uh, for obviously for my life. I think about it for uh, my grandmother who's, who's gone before me. In the, and then the hope for me and my family and, and for, for all those who, who bear the name of Christ, that we're tethered to Jesus in a way that Jesus pulls us through from one side into the next, to where we live into the, the rights and privileges and the freedoms and the protections that are afforded us by being citizens of, of heaven into this place that is far better and more beautiful than we can ever imagine. That's the hope of heaven, and it's the hope for you. And so one of the things I've always loved about All Saints Day is it gives us an opportunity to take communion. And Martin Luther is one of my favorite theologians, and, and I love his writings, but there's one image that has always stood out to me when it comes to communion. He said that when, because of this tethering aspect, said when you take communion, what we do here, they do there, even if it is separated by just a veil, because we're both tethered together in Christ. And so being tethered with him also means being tethered with them. And so I hope that's your hope as you come and prepare your hearts to receive these elements. Oh God, we give thanks for your love and your mercy. We pray, oh Lord, that that we are in need of this. Uh, And so what we do is we confess our sins before you, things that we have done and committed, things that, that have been sins of commission, been sins of omission, things that we just have not paid attention to and didn't know and and, and so things that we've not heard or seen, or, or, but yet we still operate in a way that sometimes falls short. So as we receive this, we also acknowledge our forgiveness in Jesus Christ, O oh God. 
and His grace and His mercy that has afforded us through the cross and the resurrection. And then we also, there's part of us that when we take these elements, oh God, and we eat them and we share together, we, we do so acknowledging your gift of incarnation, your gift of death, and then your gift of resurrection for our souls. Not just now, but also in the future. And that together, being connected to you, we're also connected in this mystical way to all those who have gone before us in this communion of saints. So guide us, O oh God, as we share today and we take these elements. May your name be glorified and may we leave this place knowing that we are your servants and your witnesses. All for the edification of your name. And we pray this in your name. Amen.